We are a people at war. There is a war taking place right now all around us. We did not start it, but we cannot escape it. Even as I now speak, it is taking place. Over this past week in particular, I've been greatly disturbed and shocked by what I have seen taking place. There absolutely is an evil conspiracy that reaches to the highest levels of the rulers and authorities. Fraud, deception is rampant, lies, and propaganda of the order of the day. Well, this past week, I've become more aware than ever just how ruthless, immoral, treacherous our enemy is. It seems there are no depths too low for them to stoop, no chicanery too wicked for them to attempt. And here's the shocking thing. Despite how obvious some of their ploys are, they are still somehow managing to succeed. They are brazen, shameless. And they play for huge stakes, and make no mistake, they play to win. We as Christians cannot sit idly by, wringing our hands. We cannot afford to be passive and do nothing. We must prepare for war. We must fight back. If we do not act, the enemy will win, and all the gains that we have made over the past years will be lost. We must act boldly and with great courage. We must prepare for war, and we must do so this very day. It is my deepest prayer that we will leave here this morning unified in our settled determination to resist and withstand the enemy. Now, some of you may think that I've been talking about the recent U.S. elections. I have not. The battle I speak of is infinitely more personal and important. We fight for stakes that are infinitely higher and longer lasting. I am speaking of the battle over your soul. I speak of a war being brought to you and me on all sides against the schemes of the devil and his minions. Our passage this morning, as we move into the closing section of Ephesians, is a call to war. Open your Bibles to Ephesians 6. But it's not the war we're tempted to think it is. It's not a war out there, it's a war in here. The propaganda of sin, the deception, you will not die. The audacious, bold claims and deceptions the ridiculous justifications we'll use for our sin. The attack on our faithfulness. This is the war we're called to fight. This is the war Paul calls us to fight. This last section of Ephesians is 10 verses long, verses 10 to 20. We'll read all of it, and it'll probably take us three, maybe even four weeks to get through. It divides into three sections. The first is the call to war in verses um, 10 to 13. And then in verses 14 through 17, we see the weapons, the tools of war. And finally, starting in verse 18, the power of war, prayer. So let's begin by reading this passage. I'll have a word of prayer. We'll begin our study. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put On the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, 
against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil and heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me that words may be given to me the opening of my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Lord God, I pray that you would rouse us from our lethargy, from our distraction, that you would call us to war, to be your people, to be alert and vigilant, to be aware of the stakes and the matters that are taking place around us. We would not be distracted, but focused and intent. That we would find our strength in you. That we would find the weapons of our warfare from you. And that we would battle boldly and courageously. That you would give us the victory that we might stand firm. It's in Jesus' name we ask. Amen. Our text this morning, we're going to look at the first 13 verses, is going to be in three points. Um, Paul shifts from his ethical instruction. If you remember, the second half of the book first followed five walks, walking this way, not that way. The fifth walk led into the household code. We saw three pairs of relationships. And now, at the end of all that, Paul says, finally. It could also be translated, for the remainder, moving forward, from now on. And he brings his ethical instruction in the letter itself to a crescendo. Employing the imagery of war and battle, he calls for us to be alert, calls for us to take action. This ties together the ethical instruction. Um, You'll see the verbs in the first one there in, in verse 10. And here's your blank, a call to be strengthened. A call to be strengthened. Finally. Be strong or be strengthened in the Lord and in the strength of his might. And in one sense, verse 10 functions as a heading for this whole section. This is the section about a call to be strengthened in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Um, It's interesting. What you have here is an imperative passive verb. Imperative demanding response on our part. We have a responsibility to see that this happens, and yet the thing that we're to see happens is acted upon us. It's not become strong, but be strengthened. This isn't the first time Paul's used a passive imperative. If you look at 518, do not get drunk with wine, that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Imperative verb, ethical command, to be acted upon. And that's really the secret of this passage is how to obey a passive imperative. How can I 
Obey the command to be strengthened. We'll see that in a moment. But before we do that, I want to point out that this notion of strength and power is a dominant theme in our passage. Various Greek words are translated that that make that the major theme. There's a conflict, and what's going to be decisive in one sense is power, is strength. And you need to be aware that there is a conflict. You need to be aware that there is a war. And then you need to make sure you're looking for power and strength in the right place. You just look through here. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may, in the verb, be able, be powerful. Same, same concept. To stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers and authorities against cosmic power over this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able, that you may have power, strength, to stand, withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. So Paul wants us to be strengthened. And the concept is this. Something external to us will give us strength. It's alien strength. It's out there strength. It's not, it's not find your inner worth, grit your teeth with your inner determination. You've got all the potential you need. Rather, I need, and I'm responsible to make sure this happens, I need to let myself be strengthened by another. Paul makes it clear then, moving in, the sphere in which this is to take place. It's in the Lord. Now, the Lord is reference to Jesus Christ. Consistently through Ephesians, the reference to the Lord has been Jesus Christ. Which means then, Paul is saying, this strength is going to take place in the sphere of your union with Christ. In and through your union with Christ. So find strength, let it, let it flow into you, be strengthened in the Lord. And then he restates it a second time, and in the strength of his might. This is not the first time Paul has referenced this. Turn back to Ephesians chapter 1. In one sense, the entire letter has been building up to this point. Themes that Paul has sown in the letter already come to a head here. You remember one of his prayers in chapter 1? I'll start actually back in verse 15. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Now, what is it that Paul is praying for them? That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. He wants us to be able to see something. And it's three things he wants us to understand. That you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, What are the riches of his glorious inheritance? And look at the third thing. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power? So here in chapter 1, Paul wants us to know, our hearts being enlightened, to comprehend, to grasp three things, one of which is the, the reservoir, the vast amount of power available at our disposal. And then at the end of the epistle, Paul instructs us, make sure we receive our strength from that. Read, read this. How, how great is this power? That you might know the immeasurable greatness of his power, verse 19, towards us who believe according to the working of his great might. 
Then he gives us an example of what this power accomplished. That he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. You notice any of our terms in our passage showing up here? Yeah, he's seeding this. And every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the age to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So in the strength of his might is referencing the power of the resurrection. That's what he put forward here. I want you to understand, Paul says, back in chapter 1, the power available to you, the strength available to you. It's the same power and strength that raised Christ from the dead, that exalted Christ above all rulers and principalities and powers. And Paul says, now I want, we have an obligation to be strengthened from that reservoir of power in Christ. That, that's, that's what's being laid out here in the first command, a call to be strengthened. Be strengthened is a central theme in this passage, and we find that strength in the sphere of the Lord, not in our own abilities, not in our own power, but in Christ. And the strength that is available to us is literally limitless. Limitless. So that's the opening call, a call to be strengthened. And I just want to pause. We're next week and possibly the week after that, we'll look at practically, specifically how that happens. How do you, how do, you do that? I just want to pause and, and make it clear to you that one of the most important aspects of your spiritual life is continually finding strength, receiving strength from Christ in him, in his strength and power. It's critical. This is one of the things we symbolize in our taking of the Lord's table, that again and again and again we come and find strength and nourishment from him. And so we'll get more practical in the how-tos next week. I just want you to get thematically, this is probably the most important aspect of your maintained relationship with the Lord. You constantly find strength in him. The temptation is to find strength in ourselves, to walk in the flesh, to walk in our own strength. And because there's a war taking place, you're, you're going to get slaughtered if you try that. Be strengthened in the Lord and in the strength of his might. And verse 11, I think, clarifies more specifically how that happens as we move to a call to arms. A call to arms. It, in one sense, it's a new command, but it's actually a participle in the way it's telling you how it happens. The what? Put on the whole armor of God. Put on the whole armor of God. And I think what he's doing here is showing us that this is how we become strengthened. This isn't a new thing. Become strengthened and in addition put on the armor of God. But I think, and grammatically I think this bears out, is be strengthened by putting on the full armor of God. This is how you are strengthened. This is how you're strengthened. And in that sense, we're following the pattern that he established in chapter 4. Remember, you put off, put on, renew. Here's something to put on. Put on the armor of God. As we go through the armor of God, by implication, you'll know what to put off. What to put off. Um, and here, I think, solves how we can actively obey an imperative passive command. The blanks here. We must actively put on his armor. So we're responsible to put it on. We're responsible to, to don the helm, the breastplate, the belt, the sword. 
And yet it's the armor of another. So here's our responsibility, our activity. And yet the power is another's. The weapons are another's. The defensive tools are another's. This is how we become strengthened. We must actively put on his armor. Okay? So there's the command. And the rest of our passage is going to tell us the why. Why must we do this? Why is this important? Why give us one more thing to do? So the what? You've got to be strengthened. Where? In Christ. In his strength of his might. How do you do that? You do that by putting on the full armor of God. Not some of it, not part of it, all of it. And next week, we'll look at the armor of God and its pieces. This week, if anything, is, is generating the, the, this is important, pay attention, we need to be about this. The alarm, the call to war. Why? Why do we need to do this? That you may be able to withstand against the schemes of the devil. Now, the clear implication is if you don't, Become strengthened in the Lord and the power of his might. If you don't put on the full armor of God, you will not stand. You will fall against the schemes of the devil. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. This is one of the important concepts to grasp is that our war is primarily defensive. The spiritual war that we're engaged in is not fundamentally offensive. We're not going out getting new land. We're not knights going out conquering dragons. Rather, we're a besieged people holding off the enemy until our captain and king returns. The terminology here is clear. You stand against the schemes of the devil. We have an enemy who's attacking us from all sides. He waits for opportune times. He wants to take us down. He has the advantage of our own indwelling sin, agreeing with, cheering on, passing on his lies. And so the goal is to stand, to remain standing. This is primarily defensive. It's about you and it's about me. It's not a war that's out there. It's a war that's in here. We do this so that we can stand against the schemes of the devil. Our war is primarily defensive. 1 Peter 5.8 tells us that, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Our enemy is crafty. He has schemes. The blank here, our enemy is cunning. He's cunning. He's wily. He deceived the woman in the garden. The God of this world has deceived the nations. And he's after us. He's gunning for us. And we need to be alert and vigilant. Paul uses the same imagery of the garden as what is concerned for the faithfulness of the church in Corinth. 2 Corinthians 11.3, he writes, I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Again, notice what the, the focus of the war is about. Whether or not the church at Corinth will be led astray by lies and false teaching, 
or whether they will maintain a sincere devotion to Christ. The war we battle is not a war out there. It's not a war to retake America. It's the war to, to retain the sovereignty of Christ over my heart. Now that, that will have implications for how I live in my country, how you live in your country. But understand the war is far closer and more personal than anything we think of. It's fundamentally defensive. We have an enemy gunning for us, wanting to take us down. So the goal is that we could stand. There's someone trying to take you out. Someone trying to take me out. And we need to be strengthened in Christ and in the power of his might. We need to put on his armor so that we won't fall, but that we will stand, that we will persevere. Then he goes further to give us another reason. And again, Paul is correcting what he assumes are potential misconceptions of his readers. And the same misconceptions we may share. For, he says, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. But against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness. Against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So, one reason, the devil himself is gunning for us. He's got crafty schemes. He's coming for us. And second, the enemy is far greater and more powerful than you and I are tempted to imagine. And so he gives a number of titles for who we fight against. It's not flesh and blood. It's not flesh and blood people. The Crusades got this entirely wrong. No, it's not against flesh and blood. But look at the titles he gives. The rulers against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Okay? So let's try to talk through this. We've already seen the rulers and authorities in a similar context. Again, turn back to chapter 1. Where these things come together, heavenly places, great power of Christ, rulers and authorities. Paul prays that our, our hearts might be enlightened. We might know, verse 19, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. At the resurrection, Jesus Christ received from his Father the right to open that scroll we sang about. The lamb who is slain is worthy, and he is exalted and given a name above every name. He's raised above them, and the very people he's raised above are the ones we are now at war with. We're in an interesting position. Our king has been coronated, and yet we do not see him rule now as he will rule. Psalm 110, verse 1, gives us the picture somewhat. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The events of David's life are helpful in illustrating this. David is anointed king by Samuel even while the usurper Saul runs around ravaging 
killing the priests at Nob, hunting the Lord's anointed. David will not stretch out his hand to strike him down. So he's the anointed king. He's the Lord's king. The Lord has found a man after his own heart. And yet, in point of fact, the former king, the evil king, is still ruling the land. And that is, I think, a fair picture of how the New Testament describes the current situation. Christ has been exalted. He's been raised. At the cross, the serpent's head was crushed. And yet, in his death throes, he seeks to take as many with him as he can. Our Lord will return, he will return victorious. And so, in one sense, we engage this battle against the rulers and authorities, knowing Christ has already triumphed over them. You you fight a war differently when you know you're going to win, when you know the decisive act has already taken place. But in some senses, that makes the enemy even more desperate against rulers and against authorities. Speaking of those who are first in rank and order and those with power and right. The next title he gives against cosmic powers over this present darkness. World powers. This is global. This is not limited to Martinsdale, Norwalk. This war, this conspiracy... The agents of darkness are everywhere. This present darkness, again referring to the age we live in now, the age where the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers from seeing the light of the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Then he describes him yet another way against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. This brings up an interesting point. I'll draw four, and even though they're grouped under point three, they're really four points from the whole list of titles. First, we wrap our heads around this. The enemy is not the Democrats. It's not the socialists. The enemy is spiritual. Our enemy is spiritual. It's not flesh and blood. Spiritual forces in heavenly places. Our enemies are spiritual. In fact, turn back to chapter 2, where Paul describes vividly the power of our enemy as we were all formerly slaves bound to the enemy. This is the conflict. Nations, according to Isaiah, are dust in the scales. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That's the conflict. It's over slavery to sin and death. It's about our allegiance, our former allegiance to the God of this world, the prince of the air. That's what the stakes are. Human souls are eternal. There There will never be a time where you cease to be. Our nation will cease to be. North America will cease to be. This planet will cease to be. The stars will fall from the sky 
No one in this room, no one listening online will ever not be. Which means the consequence of our faithfulness or our faithlessness is of infinitely greater importance than any earthly conflict. That's what it means. Our enemy is spiritual. Our enemy, second, is powerful. Our enemies are powerful. Paul stresses this point to drive home the folly, the futility of taking this enemy on in your own strength. If you think your own wisdom, your own power, your own planning, your own strength is sufficient, you will be slaughtered. And think about it. Your your commanding officer, your king has issued you, given you a fully sufficient shield and armor and sword, all the tools, all the strength you need, and you say, no, I'm okay, I'm good, I got it. You're here to get mowed down. And he wants us to understand the power of the enemy. The enemy is far more powerful than we understand. Now, he's not far more powerful than our king and captain. He's not far more powerful than the power at our disposal. The power at our disposal was enough to exalt Christ above all of them. But if you and I don't avail ourselves of that, if we get complacent, if we're not vigilant, these are the terms he'll use at the end of the passage, we're sitting ducks. Our our enemies are powerful. Listen to the power Paul ascribes to the devil in 2 Corinthians 4.4. Speaking of those who perish, unbelievers. (coughs) In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers. All of them. He's blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. That's power. And its effect is damning. Its effect is huge. Massive. Third, our enemies are globally organized. Our enemies are globally organized. This conspiracy... It's not a bunch of individual cells waging war. Notice the terminology, the ranks, powers, first. If someone's the first, that means they're second in commands and thirds in commands and legions. Our enemy is organized. His attacks are not happenstance. Turn, turn to Daniel chapter 10. We don't get much insight into the spiritual world. We, we know very little about the realms of angels and demons. And I'll give you a heads up. Every time I get to peek behind the curtain, I'm surprised. So it's probably, at least I've learned, not a good idea to guess what's going on in the angelic world. Because just about every time I get to see what's going on, it's not what I would have expected. But in, in Daniel chapter 10, Daniel prays for the interpretation of a dream, vision. And we receive... This remarkable word. Daniel 10. Look at verse 13. Okay, actually, look at verse 12. Look at verse 10, actually. Let's start there. Behold, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. And he said to me, O Daniel, man greatly loved, understand the words that I speak to you and stand upright. For now I have been sent to you. And when he had spoken this word to me, I stood up trembling. Then he said to me, Fear not, Daniel, 
For from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before your God, your words have been heard. See, Daniel prayed for many days. No answer came. Why might that be? It's not what I would have expected. And I have come because of your words. The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days. There was an angelic standoff where an angel sent from God was prevented from coming to Daniel for 21 days because the prince, the power of Persia, a spiritual being, withstood him 21 days. I would never have guessed that. Never would have guessed that. But notice he's, he's in charge of a region. There's organization implied. Look ahead to verse 20. Then he said, Do you know why I have come to you? But now I will return and fight against the prince of Persia. So he's fighting the prince of Persia for 21 days. He pauses the fight, goes, delivers this message to Daniel, then returns to the fight. I, okay. But what we learn from this glimpse behind the curtain is that there is real conflict, real war. It's organized. There are leaders of regions, areas of the world. So Paul makes it clear, our enemy is organized. We're turned to Psalm 2. Psalm 2 picks up on this same theme. This is the great messianic enthronement psalm. The early Christian church quoted this after the first persecution of the apostles when they beat them and let them go free. The church gathers and they pray in the book of Acts, the opening verses of Psalm 2, indicating that these things are taking place now, even as they will find their culmination of fulfillment when the Lord returns. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Global, worldwide, every nation, every king, every ruler, war against God. And is God concerned? He who sits in heaven laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. And then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. God's response to the announcement that all the nations of the earth are wanting to cast off his rule, I've, I've set my king on Zion. And with a clear implication, that should be more than sufficient. Then it turns from the perspective of the son. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, or my son, today I've begotten you. Ask of me, and I'll make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth your possession. That's that scroll we were talking about in, in Revelation 5. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. And then we get to the age we live in, where the son has not returned. He has not struck down the nations with a rod of iron. And so there's an invitation for us to turn and do homage to him. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear, rejoice with trembling, kiss the sun, lest he be angry. And you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. That's the conflict that has taken place. We're living in that day. The sun will return with his rod of iron. The book of Revelation picks up on that three different times. But until then, we're to hold the line. Until then, 
We're mostly playing defense. We're not fighting flesh and blood. Our enemies are spiritual. Our enemies are powerful. Our enemies are organized. And our enemies are in heavenly places. Our enemies are in heavenly places. Now this phrase, heavenly places, has come up a number of times in Ephesians. It's another reason why it's, it's, it's not fundamentally here and now. There will be implications here and now, of course. But speak, let me read to you the different um, events, things that have happened that take place in heavenly places. Ephesians 1.3 Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. So heavenly places is where all of our spiritual blessings reside. They're not here, fundamentally, in any real sense. Then, going to that prayer, that you may know what is the hope to which you've been called, what are the immeasurable riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his great might, when he worked in Christ, when he raised him from the dead, and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. So this is where Christ has ascended to, the heavenly places. Our enemy... It's in the same sphere of existence, the same realm where Christ himself is exalted and raised, which gives us hope and comfort. When we battle, our king is in the same sphere, realm. It's in the heavenly places. But also, Ephesians makes it clear, there's a very real sense in which you and I have been raised in the heavenly places. Ephesians 2, verses 4 and 6, we read about our former slavery. Now, what did God do in response to our deadness, to our slavery? He raised us from the dead, and he exalted and raised us as well. Verse 4, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. My grace, you've been saved. And raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Through our union with Christ, we're there too. We're still here, but in a very real sense, this is how we can operate in that sphere as well. And understand that God's ultimate purpose for the church is that we would be victorious in that sphere. Go to chapter 3. Start in verse 7. If you remember from a few months ago, in chapter 3, Paul's explaining the mystery of the gospel. Jew and Gentile, together in Christ, no dividing wall. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. What is this plan? Well, he wants to bring to light through the church his wisdom and his plan. What is it? So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God may now be made known to who? Who's the audience? Who does God want to show this to? The rulers and authorities in heavenly places. God has a goal he wants to accomplish in his church. He wants to glorify himself by triumphing over these would-be adversaries and enemies through and in his church as he reveals to them his wisdom and his plan and sending a son to die for a unified humanity. This was according to the eternal purpose 
that he realized in Christ Jesus our Lord in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. And the way God triumphs and shows that is in some sense is mundane. It's the mundanity of the book of Job. What's the conflict in the book of Job? The conflict in the book of Job is Satan saying, take his stuff away, he'll curse you. Take his health away, he'll grumble and complain. How important was that struggle? It's more important than this election, I'll tell you that. More important than world peace, World War II, World War I. It rings forever. And Job was faithful. He persevered. And God showed, demonstrated his goodness and his power as Job showed God is the giver of all things, and I'll trust him. The battle is not about who will win our election. The battle is about in our hearts how will we respond to it. Will we still be faithful husbands and fathers? Will we still be faithful wives and sons and daughters and masters and servants? Will we walk in truth and light? Will we love one another? Will we speak the truth to one another? Will we be generous with one another? And and Satan and his forces are conspiring to lead us astray, that we'll come up with lies and excuses why it's okay for me to be selfish and why really I deserve to be angry because after all, we're really kind of a jerk to me and they deserved it and... On and on the lies and propaganda go. There's a global scheme attempting to get us off mission, off point. Think of the things Paul told us to attend to. They're somewhat mundane. Hey, speak the truth in love. Stop lying to each other. Hey, stop stealing. Be generous. Stop getting angry with each other. And yet it's hard. It takes God's power to do that. And the enemy is assaulting us. No, 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 it's okay. You deserve to be angry. They did it to you, of all people. I know my heart is a master propagandist, giving me lies and deception and excuses constantly about why this is an exception, why I deserve this, why it's really okay, why if you really understood, it wouldn't be as bad as you think. And on and on the war goes. Battle is about whether we can obey the previous instructions in this book or not. That's the battle. And our enemy is spiritual, our enemy is powerful, our enemy is organized. And this battle is rolled out in heavenly places. Stakes are high, it matters. But you think of how many millions upon millions of God's children have been encouraged by the faithfulness of Job. Remember, my friend Bruce Pulver found endless encouragement from Job and his faithfulness and God's faithfulness to him. These are the things that matter ultimately, truly. Let's bring us then to the, the final verse, verse 13, where really he restates the command. It sort of begins and ends like a sandwich. He tells us what he wants us to do. Then he gives us motivation. Why should we do it? Because it's really important. You and I stand and our enemy is powerful, and he's organized, and it's global. So then he says in verse 13, Therefore take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand, withstand, I'm sorry, in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Again, not some of the armor, but all of it. And we'll see in the next week or two. 
what that is. And I'm going to try to get really practical because I know this is abstract. What does it mean to put on the shield of faith? How do you do that? How do you know if you've done that or not? God willing, we'll have some understanding on that. My point and my goal for you this morning is that you be aware of the war. You get your minds ready for war. That you would understand the stakes, the scope, and the size of our enemy. That you would be eager to learn how to put that armor on. That you may be able to withstand an evil day. And again, the language here is again defensive. You're withstanding. There's an onslaught coming to you. You're not advancing. You're not making the charge. The enemy's charging you, me. We saw that earlier, back up in verse 12. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood. It's a word usually meant for hand-to-hand close combat. And so again, the pictures of soldiers on guard with an enemy approaching sneakily. The battle is close. It's in your face. We withstand. We remain standing. The battle is internal, not external. It's the battle in here, not the battle out there. And so our goal is that we must resist the enemy's attack. We must resist the enemy's attack. Take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand in the evil day. Now the evil day links back to the last walk command. If you look at verse 15 of chapter 5, 515, if you remember, he, he gives the last walk command in three opposing pairs, not this but this. Look carefully how you walk, not as unwise but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Then, um, and do not get drunk with wine. That is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. The days are evil. These days are evil. Now, he doesn't say that exactly. So I think in one sense, he's talking about a battle that takes place here and now. But the evil day probably references periods and times of particularly intense attack. We know from Satan that even though he's constantly attacking, the strength of his attacks wax and wane. You remember, remember in Luke chapter 4, after Satan had tempted Jesus and he was triumphant and victorious through his reliance on the sword of spirit? We read in, in Luke chapter 4, verse 13, the devil And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. The devil's planning his his attacks. And so the evil day, in one sense, is a reference to this. It's it's in this life. This isn't looking to the return of Christ. This is looking to things in this life because these days are evil. But the evil day for you might be a different day than me. And so we need to be ready now for whenever the attack comes. It's too late when the enemy's storming the gates, to turn around and start playing, where did I leave my shield? It's too late. It's a call to immediate attentiveness. It's a call to immediate alertness so that we will be able to withstand the offensive attack in the evil day. James 4, 7 promises, submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Let me get to the final clause. And having done all to stand firm. That's that's the goal, folks. The goal is not to bring in the kingdom of God. I mean, that is a goal. It's just God does that. 
Our goal is to be faithful. People ask me periodically, what's your 10-year plan for this church? Not to shipwreck it, to still be standing. I don't look much further than that. Lord, help me not to lead these people astray. Help me not to abandon my post. Help me to still be alert and watching 10 years from now. That's, That's about as far as my vision goes. But I think that's primarily where our focus should be on as well. What's your goal for 10 years? To still be a faithful husband, be a better husband, be a better father. That's that's where my sights are on. I pray that would be where your sights are on. That you would, having done all, stand. Having done all to stand. Just two things from this, then we'll sing our closing song. Understand, we must remain fighting to the end. Having done all, we just gotta, there's more to be done. If you think, I've done this, I put the armor on, did it last week. Nope, keep putting it on. Having done all. Listen to how the Apostle Paul speaks of it himself. He charges Timothy, fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. And then at the end of his life, Paul writes this in 2 Timothy 4, 7 through 8. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. Not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Because ultimately, we must remain standing to the end. Now, you might get knocked down, but you need to get back up. That's why we need each other, to help each other get back up. Because we saw two weeks ago, we did the Reformation and the Assurance of Salvation, that true faith perseveres. But I want to end with some notes of encouragement for you. The first of which is we have the promise of our Lord. If you will look to the Lord and his strength, you will be victorious. You will stand God's power is more than a match for the enemies. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. That's a promise we have from the risen Lord. In Jude one twenty four and 25, we read this. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. Get that? God is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. And then in the very book of Revelation itself, I'll, I'll just read this. I'll call the, the singers, the musicians up. I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and power and kingdom of our God and authority of his Christ has come. For the accuser of the brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. They have conquered him. By the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony. For they loved not their lives until death. God is calling us to make war. God is calling us to be vigilant. And he's calling us to find our strength and power in him. Please stand as we sing our closing song.